Hello and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. If demography is destiny, then America is on its way to becoming ever more Hispanic. States like Texas and California already have Latino pluralities. Roughly 50% of total population growth in the country over the last 10 years has come from Latino people, and demographers expect these trends to continue. Contrary to the nasty political propaganda that seems to dominate much of the conversation about immigration, the growth in the Latino population is not driven by immigration, but by native-born Americans. And here's a shocker. Latinos are not a monolith, not politically, culturally, or even racially. We Latinos are incredibly diverse in thought, attitudes, and dreams. To understand the future of American democracy, you need to understand American Latinos. There are few more knowledgeable people about this community than my guest today, Hector Tobar. Tobar is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a former columnist for the Los Angeles Times and contributor to the New York Times, author of novels and nonfiction. He has written a profound book about the essence of what he calls Latinidad, the meta of Latinos, the essence of this group of Americans who now make up almost 20% of all voters. In his new book, Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meaning and myth of Latino, Tobar explores the contours of being Latino in modern America, the contradictions, the angst, the hope and dreams. For a group so critical to the future of our politics, we are widely misunderstood in the media and popular consciousness. I hope this conversation helps shine a bright light on the rich complexity of Latinos in our country and our role in the future of American democracy. Here's Hector Tobar. Hector Tobar, welcome to the X-Ray. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, let, let's start with uh, sort of a big question. Why is Latino not a really good term for for us? Well, because Latino people um, come from so many different backgrounds. You know, a Latino person can be um, very indigenous or very European. A Latino person can be of mostly African heritage or some mixture. And Latino is a term that is privileging our European heritage the European parts of our heritage. Its origins are in this idea that people of uh, Latin America have more in common with the French and the Spanish than they do with the English. It's a term born from rivalries of the 19th century. And um, it was taken up in the 1980s by people trying to express an alliance between Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and other groups in the United States. But you know, now in this era when we're more aware of uh, the stories that have combined to form Latino identity, it does feel inadequate. But at the same time, it is very useful to express an alliance between peoples. And and that's interesting. I, in my own experience as an immigrant from Uruguay, I, when I was little near New York, I was Spanish, which I, it never occurred to me because we had no other word. And if I were to explain I was from Uruguay, I might as well have been saying I'm from Neptune or something like this. And then over time, I, I became Hispanic, eventually Latino. Um, and this seems to be something that happens across time. You've categorized this phenomena essentially as expressing non-whiteness. In other words, it's, it's a term that comes, among other things, trying to explain people who are not of, I guess, uh, Northern European descent. Is that how you see it fundamentally, that that's its existence? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
when we see on television the ethnic and racial breakdown of the United States, they break it down into these four or five groups. You know, there's white, black, Asian, Latino, and um, and Native American. And each one of those terms has been coined to describe not the color of people's skin or even their culture, but really their relationship to the United States and to the dominant group, the so-called white Americans. So black is created uh, as a result of slavery uh, to explain slavery, why some people are slaves and others aren't. Asian is coined to describe uh, the country's relationship uh, to these immigrants, primarily on the West Coast, Japanese and Chinese um, at first, and to describe uh, this country's relation to them and this country's desire to limit their immigration. And Hispanic and Latino are the creation of this era of mass migration, of people migrating from Puerto Rico, from South America, from Mexico and Central America. And um, the social conflict and the social unease that that created, uh, the social challenges and the movements also, uh, people uh, realizing that something was changing in Miami, changing in New York, uh, in Chicago. And so those that word is a kind of artifact of that relationship, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting in the whole relationship between Latino and race. Um, I, I've lived in New York, in Miami, in Los Angeles, and now in DC. And in every place, Latino is a different thing, or at least that's my own perception of, of things. Absolutely. What connects us? just the, the ancestry from Latin America, or is there something that uh, perseveres uh, through the immigration experience? Yeah, I think that um, Latino is an identity that is in many ways similar to Jewish identity. Because Jewish identity has at its heart this story of migration and of perseverance of family in the face of hardship. So at Passover, Jewish people uh, commemorate the exodus from Egypt, which was <laughs> thousands of years ago. And I think what binds together the people called Latino is the shared experience of empire, except that you know the, the king who has uh, shaped our lives isn't the Pharaoh in Egypt, it's the United States and its power, uh, in, especially in the Western Hemisphere, it's imperial power. And the drama of, of United States as, uh, the United States as an empire has shaped the lives of people across Latin America in, in different ways. If you're Cuban, your migration is the product of this Cold War right between the Soviet Union and the United States uh, and of also the Cuban Revolution. Um, if you're Central American, you have coups in your uh, background um, and so forth and so on. And of course, everyone uh, in Latin America is... Um, a product of a social system of inequalities created by the extraction of resources, right? So wonderfully described by Eduardo Galeano, tu compatriota, right? Your fellow Uruguayan in the beautiful book, The Open Veins <laughs> yeah. of Latin America. So I think that uh, Latino people kind of share, you know, no matter their color, they have a story of empire in their background and of migration. And how, how has that shaped you and, and your work as a journalist and, and now as a thinker and intellectual? You came to the U.S., or rather your parents came to the U.S. after the 1954 coup in Guatemala, which is one of the sort of very dark chapters of American involvement in Latin America. What, how, how did that shape your worldview and, and your own sense of who you are? Oh, you know, uh, my earliest childhood memories 
are of my mother and father in Los Angeles listening to Guatemalan radio on the shortwave my father had set up in our house to, um, you know, Marimba from Guatemala City. Uh, radio TGW uh, was the, you know, the national radio station of Guatemala <laughs> and uh, the Marimba Chapinlandia playing right. from, from Guatemala City. And so, uh, and also when I got a little bit older, my father's stories of the 1954 coup. My father was 13 years old when the coup took place. Uh, he heard the bombs falling on Guatemala City. He was uh, hiding in an orphanage where his, his mother, my grandmother, worked. And then later, when he came to the United States, became very radicalized, went through kind of leftist, 1960s leftist phase. <laughs> uh, and so I, I grew up with that story of, of our separation, our country, the country of our ancestors being victimized by this imperial power. And also at the same time with a story of just Guatemala as this land of beauty, right? It's the land of eternal spring and of my parents' uh, love affair in Guatemala City when they were very young. And so for me, Guatemala was always this place of both you know, violence and political interventions, but also of love affairs and family. And do you find that that sort of the trauma of those events are something that you carry with you and, and uh, forward? Or is it something that is in the historical background and you're just another American uh, living in LA? Well, I think the primary, the, the, the deepest trauma that I think is most common among Latino people, and which I definitely share, is the trauma of the separation from uh, your extended family and from the idea that you're from this place um, where you have deep roots. So my family goes back uh, in California to 1962, um, and uh, very I grew up with very few relatives. We were very early in Guatemala migration, and and so that um, that loneliness and that separation is something that definitely marked me, and I think is even more uh, marked today because there are so many young people growing up in mixed status families where their parents are undocumented or they are undocumented and they just they, they can't return because it's a it's it's a one-way journey if you go back to mexico or ecuador or colombia or whatever because because of this country's immigration policies and the militarization of the border so yeah i think that those um those wounds are deeper than ever in the Latino community. So for, for the research of your latest book, Our Immigrant Souls, uh, you took a cross-country trip, essentially, to, to meet our people, if I can put it in such a grandiose way, but uh, to meet the diversity that we are. What did you find? What, what was surprising about that road trip? Yeah, the, um, the final two sections of Our Migrant Souls involve um, travel. Uh, my travel to Guatemala, my return to Guatemala, my travel across the United States. You know, I had done similar journeys 15 years ago when I wrote um, Translation Nation, which uh, was, was more of a journalistic, more of a reporter's kind of notebook travelogue. And in Our Migrant Souls, uh, my current book, it's more of a, a critical essay and a reflection on the country. And I think in the last 20 years, uh, in the 25 years since I've been a reporter, I, I first reported on the new communities uh, of Latino uh, migrants in Kansas and Georgia and Idaho and other places, oof, you know, at the beginning of the century. Now, uh, more than 20 years later, you know, we're more settled in everywhere. <laughs> you know, the United States really does feel like a, a mestizo country, if I may use that term, that old archaic term, a race term from the Spanish. Yeah. 
Sp- yeah, Spanish, Spanish Empire, Empire. <laughs> term. Uh, and there's this mixing everywhere. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and especially in rural America, you go to small towns and, you know, there, um, there are people who've been working in farm as farm workers in uh, the Pacific Northwest and in Arizona and Texas and Colorado for generations. And, um, and then there's this new migration from the 1980s, 90s and early 2000s that has created all kinds of um, really now well deep rooted communities across the United States. There really isn't a corner of the United States where you can't find a Mexican restaurant. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, I, I went to a Mexican restaurant in Portland, Maine. Uh, uh, and I got great pupusas in Portland, <laughs> Maine on my journey. I didn't mention that in the book. And I never would have thought that I could find some really excellent pupusas in Portland, Maine. And so, yeah, that I, I think that to me is the most remarkable thing. The way, you know, you grow, I grew up in Los Angeles, you know, like you grew up in on the East Coast, thinking of my community as this little enclave, you know, mm-hmm. anchored to the, you know, to the edge of the ocean, <laughs> this yeah. enclave. And the rest of the country was really different. And yeah, you travel to the interior, you wouldn't see many Latino people. But now, you know, todo lo opuesto, as yeah. we say in Spanish, it's all the, you know, and it's a, uh, and so in a weird way, as I say, I describe the country is, um, it feels more like home than ever before uh, the United States. Now, having said that too, I was just incredibly surprised. Well, not surprised, but delighted by the diversity of the um, Latino uh, communities across the United States. You know, I, I visited uh, a farm worker town in, in Oregon where um, the, the person I interviewed, an, an Oregon state legislator at the time, uh, she, you know, she's a Purepecha Indian. She grew up as a Purepecha Indian from Mexico. Uh-huh. Um, I visited an artist in Salt Lake City, Mexican-American Mormon, right? Grew up in a mixed white Mexican family and uh, grew up Mormon, uh, very, very strongly identified with Chicano and Mexican-American culture. El Paso and the border. And of course, there's a wonderful Spanglish that you find uh, in the Rio Grande Valley and all the way up to El Paso, all the border communities, this, um, this wonderful mixing of Spanish and English linguistic universes. And then, of course, Miami. I was in Miami and Atlanta, Atlanta, which is now an increasingly a Mexican and uh, you know, Latino town, Atlanta. Yeah, they they sell out their soccer games there. Uh, you know, big soccer town too. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. <laughs> Miami, the Miami, of course. Yeah. You know, and I went to Little Havana, where Elian Gonzalez was a child refugee. Um, you know, uh, so many years ago, and I found it's a Guatemalan, Colombian, Ecuadorian, uh, Salvadoran in you know Nicaraguan neighborhood. Just so many different uh, Latin American nationalities. Living in in and that you know two or three blocks from where Elian's house was, a very transient working class neighborhood like the one that I grew up in L.A. Uh, or like El Barrio in in you know in New York and of course there's New York and which is oh my God you know and the deep uh, influence of Puerto Rican and now Dominican culture and their acercamiento their closeness to African American culture and struggle and and political uh, power uh, deeply interesting so yeah it's an incredibly diverse community. It very much simplified <laughs> in the American media. But yeah. yeah, no, I, I remember as a kid, uh, I had never heard Spanish without the Uruguayan accent for the obvious reasons I was in Uruguay. Um, and when I heard Wado Radio, which at the time was the biggest Latin station in New York, and I heard Puerto Rican speak, it just blew my mind. Uh, I mean, I could understand everything they said, but they sounded so different. Yet I felt very connected to them, even though 
culturally and historically very very different uh, uh, perspectives. But but you know from that marginalization that perhaps you experienced maybe not so much in L.A. but certainly I did uh, in the New York area to now where half the population growth of the U.S. is among Latinos. We're still very marginalized politically and even culturally, right? I mean, the Latin Grammys is a ghetto. I don't mean that literally, but there's no other equivalent, right? We're like in a, in a one of many ghettos, yeah. Right, right, right. And politically, there's people go after the Hispanic vote, whatever that means, and then often fail because they seem not to have been connected to this reality of this huge diversity. How do you see this playing out over the next few years? Do you see a, a greater cross identification among Hispanic groups? Do you see, for example, in your children, the sense of being, whether it's Latino or Hispanic, however they identify themselves, or Latinx, do they see themselves as being more connected to Puerto Ricans in New York than white people in Oregon? How do you see that playing out? Wow, that's a fantastic question. I see a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I'm very concerned by the continuing failure to adopt any immigration reform and to leave millions upon millions of Latino families with this wound and uh, suffering through the absence of, of citizenship rights and uh, the lack of protection. My fear is that um, this situation could last as long as Jim Crow did. Jim Crow, officially 1865 and the Civil War, Emancipation to 1965 Civil Rights Act, a hundred very difficult years in African American history. So that is really deeply concerning to me. Um, it's it's concerning that we're 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 looking at the creation of this permanent mestizo proletariat. <laughs> There's a term I never mm. would have thought I would use. Yeah, um, you know this brown skin proletariat across the country and the hardening of our social relations. Now, having said that. On the other end of it, there is this continuing blending of Mexican, Guatemalan, and other Latin American cultures, including South American cultures, with the United States. And it's so slow bleeding into the American life. You know, uh, I, I, their Chicano English, this, this kind of variant of English that comes from contact with Spanish, spoken by native English speakers, is spreading across the country. As I mentioned in my book, you go to mm. Appalachia and you mm. hear... Uh, you know, mixed wow. families where um, where an Appalachian family has married into a Mexican family and they speak this version of Chicano Appalachian English, which is intense. That's so cool. And, you know, yeah. in the South, same thing in this, you know, same thing. And so um, you see you see this kind of force of entropy of people sort of blending in together on a street level, on a, you know, on a neighborhood level. And getting along with one another and marrying into each other's families mm -hmm. and you know the 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 dreamers uh, who i worked with on this book who were my assistants at harvard when i was on this fellowship writing this book they said we're winning the culture war by which they meant that every day in everyday life you know latino identity is normalized mm -hmm. a little bit more mm -hmm. and so so you know i see these two these two things happening i see latino as a kind of corollary of class struggle in this country. And also I see it as part of this ongoing story by which American identity is formed by the collision and the mixing of all these different cultures. Um, many, you know, half century ago, uh, there was great African-American uh, critic who said the United States had already become a mulatto country because the country had, had mm -hmm. so absorbed black culture. Albert Murray, 
great music critic and, and essayist. Mm-hmm. He said the United States had become a, a mulatto country, um, you know, because white people, so-called white people and so-called black people had absorbed each other's customs through contact with one another. And you can sort of see that today in hip hop and hip hop fashions. You know, there's it's language. It's kind of a, so many what, phrases that uh, right. quote unquote mainstream white people use are in fact yes. African American uh, uh, hip hop and other sources of language. Right? Exactly, and even just a way of being. Um, so, so all of that, I, I you know, I, I see all of that. That when I look, when I think of the future, I see both of those processes at work. I remember as a kid, when we arrived, we were the first Latino family in this town, and uh, there were Italian-Americans there who were not white. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely not white. There were white people, there were Italian-Americans, and I think the Italian-Americans were thrilled to have us <laughs> yes. because they would move up a step in this weird uh, hierarchy. That's one of the things that's been talked about, right? This blending. I mean, do you think in some bizarre way Latinos are becoming white? Oh, I mean, there's no doubt that many Latino people aspire to. And, um, and yes, they assimilate into whiteness. Uh, people in my own extended, uh, family, married family have, uh, have attempted and succeeded in marrying into and blending into whiteness. But that's, that's the eternal story because as I say in, in my book, um, the relationship between Latino people and whiteness is both the comedy of us and the tragedy of us. Oh, explain a little bit about that, please. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's the comedy of us because so many of us will go to extraordinary lengths to push away our past, erase our past, change the color of our skin and our hair, the way we talk, um, the things that we do uh, in order to embrace this idea of white as this safe, protected space of affluence, because that's what white is supposed to be. It's the space of meritocracy where your past doesn't matter anymore, right? And so, yes, many Latino people do that. And, and, and what does that lead to? It leads to this horrible colorism, you know, where the lighter are seen as prettier and smarter than the darker. And, and that's really only recently begun to change, but still you don't see um, dark indigenous mestizo Latino people in the panorama of beautiful people, you, they're, they're, they're rarely there. They're rarely there. Right. Oscar Isaac is that rare exception. And he's also, he's partly Cuban, <laughs> right? Right. And he also had to lose his last names to become a- Yes, that's right. Right. He loses his last names. He loses part of his Latino identity in order to be embraced as this cultural uh, creator and, you know, actor. Um, and so- um, so yeah, I think that's the comedy of it and the tragedy also, because there are as many Afro Latino, uh, essays have written, including, um, one or two that I quote in the book, they describe the colorism and the hurt in a lot of, uh, you know, families, Afro Latino families, which almost always involve the spectrum of, uh, of color and, and very often microaggressions at family gatherings towards the blacker members of the family. And so, uh, of course, Uruguayan history, um, you know, uh, is also <laughs> defined by that completely, you know, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think that's our evil heritage, right? Collective heritage from the Spanish Empire. I, I remember reading this document of how they classified people in Venezuela 
based on some sort of percentage of uh, black and Indian blood versus European oh, right. blood. And, and it just created this tremendous hierarchy and, and set of privileges that came along with that, which I think, unfortunately, we share wow. in, our, in our culture, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's a long tradition. I mean, the, in New Spain, in what is now Mexico, legal categories were created. And so these caste designations which were ridiculous, you know, I mean, after Mestizo and Criollo and further, the more mixing you got, the crazier the names got, like Coyote yeah. and Salpatras That's and right. all these different names. Yeah, they yeah. actually had legal implications, as many a scholar has shown, which is, you know, mimicking what happens in the United States with white and black, right? Mm -hmm. um, white and black become these legal categories and whiteness is a kind of property as many uh, critical race uh, scholars have, have written. So let's uh, focus a little bit on the political implications of all this. We're now heading into election season. Uh, in the last election, the 2020 election, we had a uh, what was surprising for some analysts or some observers, which was that uh, people in southern Texas who had traditionally voted Democratic now voted Republican. We saw in Florida, Miami-Dade, which had been a Democratic island, essentially, in Florida for decades, became a Republican gain. How do you see Latin identity playing into the politics of the moment? And how do you see the exploitation of our identity, both by Democrats and Republicans, uh, impacting the political outcome next year? Well, you know, I think um, there is a lot of uh, naivete and, um, frankly, a lot of really shallow coverage about Latino people as citizens and as an electorate. You know, there is this um, expectation that we're all the same and that we're all that we all should um, vote the same way that uh, and, and kind of, you know, they, they love rubbing in our face the fact that, in fact, Trump did not win in South Texas. His vote increased substantially, but he still, Biden still won majorities in, in, in every, uh, every one of those counties in, in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, Biden still won. But yes, Trump did better. And Trump did better because Latinos are also working class people, uh, a lot more than a lot of other groups. And Trump had this very strong appeal to working class Americans. You can debate why he has that appeal and how twisted and perverse it is that working people would vote against their interests in support of this, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, this demagogue. But um, that was a big part of Trump's appeal was this economic question, especially in South Texas, where you'll remember in one of the debates that Biden had insinuated he would shut down the oil industry. Well, a lot of people in South Texas migrate to the Gulf to work in uh, in the oil fields. And so that didn't go over very well uh, in, in South Texas as in other places. So yeah, I, I think that um, uh, there is, on the other side of the coin, there's the experience of California, which has become this deep blue state, which has now produced- Thanks to Pete Wilson. Yeah, since, since Pete part. Wilson and the, yes, and, and Proposition 187 and these voter initiatives and campaigns of the 1990s in which California was a purple state and there was a lot of anger uh, over Latino immigration, the cultural changes brought to California, which led Bill Clinton, Democratic president, to begin Operation Gatekeeper in California and to build the first uh, you know, serious attempts to build a wall there in San Diego, the San Diego area. And that led to this incredible outpouring in California to Latino voter registration and eventually helped to change California into a blue state, which it now permanent, it seems, well, nothing is permanent in politics, nothing, but yeah. it's a very, very strong, um, you know, blue state here, California, thanks in large measure to not just Latino voters, but people sympathetic to them because the Latino vote is still not a majority here 
in California. Um, but but that Latino vote has really has really helped to transform California. And and now we're seeing um, you know increases in voter registration among Latino people in uh, in Georgia and North Carolina. North Carolina recently elected its first ever Latino state legislator, all these rural states. I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting what happens mm -hmm. in the next election and also in the elections to come as this, you know, this population of people who have lived through the immigration wars. You're going to have, um, if there aren't already, state legislators and congressmen and maybe even one day senators and governors whose parents were undocumented and never were able to get citizenship, right. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's going to happen inevitably. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, yeah, I'm more worried about the democratic party's inability to appeal to working class voters in general. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, um, all of, there's a lot on the, a lot of change on the horizon. Now, uh, just to come to an end to our conversation, I just, I want you to, uh, give us your sense of the future, how you see things. Obviously, you've spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about how Latinos are evolving, how the culture is evolving with it. What are your expectations, uh, 10, 20 years into the future? Do you expect that we'll have this real continuing clash where certain groups of Americans feel invaded? Uh, we know that terrible uh, mass killing in El Paso, that person had been radicalized by right-wing propaganda. He came to stop the invasion, right, of, of Mexicans. Do you foresee that there'll be greater integration, greater, I don't know if assimilation, but greater integration of Latinos into the mainstream culture? Do you expect Latinos to be able to essentially play the same role that other immigrant groups in the U.S. have played, where after a, a period of, you know, the first generation sweats and sweats and sweats, and then the next generation has a little bit better and so forth? Or do you expect that we're going to be marginalized in this country forever and, you know, be an underclass, not necessarily through our own choice, but because of the perception? I like to always say to people, Latinos, we have a terrible brand in this country, and it's not necessarily our fault that we do, but it is true, and that conditions what people expect from us and what we can expect from our own selves. You've written in the past about how high school counselors tend to advise Latinos not to apply to the top schools, which becomes a self-reinforcing dynamic, right? How do you see it? Yeah, I think in terms of the future, I think that the current situation that we live in, where, the, where Latino people are erased from this country's vision of itself, I don't think that that will last much longer. I, I think we're going to see a very assertive generation of cultural creators and leaders eventually make a big impact on our country's political institutions and also on um, on culture. You know, I think the Latino story, the, the story of the guy who's migrated from Mexico or from Ecuador or whatever, uh, did it 20 years ago or 10 years ago or whatever, that story is already imbued into the United States as, you know, for the reasons I've been describing. It's just like we've intermarried and become neighbors and started all sorts of institutions that are not valued, like soccer leagues and newspapers and uh, church groups and all that. You know, it's, it's just, it, it, I think it's an incredible period of civic activism that has gone largely, it's largely occurred under the radar of the American media. So I think that's already happening. What we don't see is that we don't see it reflected in the national culture. And I, I, I'm hoping and I'm, I'm confident that that will change. But as I said, I think I'm worried about a future in which this country is shaped by xenophobic leaders and demagogues. I mean, look at what the governors of Texas and Florida have done in the last few months in 
taking Latino people and making them into this performance, you know, using them as actors in this performance uh, in which they're showing how assertive they are against this, you know, force of illegal labor. And that's very scary. Very scary to me. Um, it, I, I don't think it's morally equivalent to what happened in Kristallnacht and the Nuremberg Laws in Germany. No, it's not mor morally equivalent. It's on the same continuum. It's the same kind of abuse of transforming a group of people who are embedded into the country and transforming them into objects of hatred and objects of scorn, right? Because every person who comes here migrates, shows a board. Almost always, they have relatives who are already here, who have been paying taxes. They have a connection to this country. And not only that, this country's wealth, uh, its ability to feed itself, to be clean and have orderly streets and, uh, you know, uh, bathrooms is related to Latino labor. And so I'm frightened uh, about the potential of further violence and further acts of aggression against the bodies of Latino immigrant people. That, that frightens me. Um, and, you know, we have in this country, we have in, the, our, in our history, we have a history of mass portations uh, of an entire group of people. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of the mass deportations of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the 1930s. Right. Which a million people. Many, yeah. You know, included many United States citizens who, mm -hmm. who ended up being repatriated to Mexico. So that, that worries me. But I am confident that in the long run, in the same way that today, today more than ever in comparison to five or 10 years ago, the African-American story is, is imbued into the United States' sense of itself, right? So when you think of justice in this country, more often than not, you think of African-American struggle. Mm-hmm. You think, uh, you know, we commemorate Martin Luther King Day. Uh, it's part of the curriculum and every school in the United States has a curriculum about slavery, reconstruction, and the civil rights movement. Basic, right? For now. For now, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that one day, I'm hope, hopeful that, there will, that part of the American curriculum in public schools, maybe a generation from now, will be about migration and economics and inequality. Uh, I mean, this is actually a little bit of a pipe dream right now, but that this story will be incorporated into America's you know, vision of itself so that, you know, you can go, for example, to the, you know, Lower East Side in New York, and there's the Tenement Museum, which is a kind of museum of European migration from the early 19th and late 18th century. And, you know, of course, there's, uh, you know, there's Ellis Island, and there is, um, uh, you know, this whole um, museum-like approach to understanding uh, European migration. That's, that's already part of America's vision of itself. There was also a lot of undocumented illegal European migration, especially after 1925 when this country adopted quotas. Mm -hmm. That's not really talked about very much. But one day, I think that um, this story of migration, of Latino migration, will be incorporated into the country's version of itself. And so there'll be a monument in the, uh, in the Tijuana River estuary which is now this uh, state park, California State Park, with, you know, with this three, fence, three right? different layers of fencing. Yeah. There'll be some monument there to the people who cross there. Um, there'll be a monument uh, to, um, to, the, to the people who lost their lives uh, and risked their lives crossing the Rio Grande. And, and this country will recognize that, that that's as much as part of itself as the Mayflower and Martin Luther King and I Have a Dream. Well, that's that's a uh, an optimistic point of view, and uh, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, Hector Tobar, thank you so much for joining the X Ray. 
Thank you so much for having me and for allowing me to talk about my book, Our Migrant Souls. Thank you, sir. The first modern novel of Western literature is Don Quixote. This masterpiece by Miguel Cervantes is even now a powerful touchpoint in Latino culture. The truth may be stretched thin, but it never breaks, and it always surfaces above lies as oil floats on water, is one of the most famous lines from the book. And it seems to fit, for so much anti-Latino propaganda has been spread across our political landscape that even we Latinos have a hard time recognizing ourselves in the media and political discourse. But the truth is emerging. American Latinos, like other immigrant groups who came to this country, are regular Americans, hopeful, imperfect, and perpetually seeking a better life. As Latinos play an ever more prominent role in our politics, understanding this diverse group of Americans becomes, well, crucial to our common future. I want to thank Hector Tobar for joining me today, and I want to thank the Issue One production team, Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Rene Pineda. And I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. For more information on this podcast, check out thexray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Issue One.